Today we're going to talk about the minimum. We, we already talked about it a couple weeks ago. We're going to say it again. The minimum impact that the child of God should have in their legacy. Part three is called the third generation. The third generation, first thing on your notes, the minimum legacy for a believer should be the third generation. The minimum legacy for a believer should be the third generation. I want to read to you our opening scripture in Psalm 112, verses 1 through 6. It says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever unto the upright there arises light in the darkness he is gracious and full of compassion and righteous a good man deals graciously and lends he will guide his affairs with discretion surely he will never be shaken the righteous will be in everlasting remembrance in other words everlasting legacy they will live a life that outlives their life I'm telling you, that's what legacy means, to live a life that outlives your life. Listen, the third generation throughout Scripture is, is spoken of as the minimum impact. Proverbs 13, 22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance or a legacy, or, or whether it's materialistic or whatever it is, his impact is to his children's children. Somebody shout, children's children. You know what that is? That's your grandchildren. So your minimum legacy as a believer should be to your grandchildren. Now, some of you don't have children, let alone grandchildren. So it's hard for you to think that way. Well, this is one of the things that we always say. You've got to become big picture. You've got, to begin, you've got to begin to look beyond the moment in which you live. You're impacting your generation, but you've got to think whether you realize it or not, whether you want to believe it or not, there's another generation coming after you. And then there's another generation coming after that generation. I want to talk to you this morning about the power of the third generation. Historians and social uh, people who study the, the social habits of others, known as a sociologist, they have observed and have, and have written many times about an interesting trend that occurs in groups of people, communities, families, and even cultures. It is known as the phenomenon of the third generation. The phenomenon of the third generation. Simply put, they have observed that there, are com there's, that there commonly occurs deterioration within a community that tends to climax with the third generation. When you heard this when you was a kid, boy, I tell you what, it looks like the world's going to hell on a bobsled. Remember that one? I changed it a few years and said, oh, no, wait, they, they used to say handbasket. I just said what I changed it to. I changed it to bobsled, praise God. My mama used to tell me uh, a handbasket. This generation don't even know what a handbasket is. The world looks like it's going to hell on a bobsled. It's wide open. But what happens is many times the deterioration does not fully go into effect until the third generation. It begins across generations, and then we see the culmination of the culture shift in the third generation. Now, of course, there's the generation of the baby boomers, right? We got baby boomers in this house. The baby boomers are right now the older generation. Right? 
And then the older generation right under is my generation. We're called the baby busters. Because the baby boomers, man, they got all excited when their mamas and daddies came back from the war. And they just said, hey, we didn't have a bunch of kids. Called the baby boomers. And then all, the, all of them had a bunch of kids. And all the mamas and daddies and the bunch of kids looked at them and said, "Woo, this is chaotic. I ain't having as much kids as my mom and daddy did. And they busted that thing. Praise God. So they went from seven and eight and nine brothers and sisters down to one or two brothers and sisters. You know what I'm talking about? That's why we're called the baby busters. All right. Gen X, if you will. But what we see, now don't get, don't get offended by this, baby boomers, all right? Don't get offended by this. But what we see is now, in our generation, the deterioration of moral values did not begin to happen within the last five to ten years. It is because, and this is not, I'm not painting a broad brush, but it is because the now older generation, if you go back three generations when they were the first generation, and now they're, the third, they're alive while the third generation underneath them still exists, they were the generation that brought in, let's do away with morality. Free love, free sex, there's no boundaries. Come on, are y'all hearing me? So they brought that in, and the whole America was just like, we don't believe that. But yet... They taught their kids, this is the way. And the ones that didn't believe that died off. And the only ones that was left was the children of those that said, we don't believe in God anymore and that God is dead. So then you had the second generation, and now we're into the third generation, and we wonder what happened to our nation. Is this good preaching? I want to, you know, there's certain things that you hear people say sometimes, you go, duh. I call them duh moments. And a lot of times, duh moments. You, you just sort of flip it off because it's so obvious that you don't really grasp the deepness of it. So here's a duh moment, but it's also deep. And it's simply this. We all have a third generation from us, and we are all a third generation of those before us. Let that sink in. Even if we don't know who they are, you know, I know my biological father. I write about it in the book where I found my biological father. I briefly knew him in my life. I have no clue to this day. I'm sure I could probably find it out, but I have no clue to this day who my biological grandfather is on my father's side. No name, no clue. But I am the third generation from him. I don't know who he is. But there's a reason I got all messed up. And I'm not blaming it on him by no means. And I'm not blaming it even on my biological father. But the reality is this. There's no way that the third generation up from me on my father's side could have impacted me because he wasn't even in my life. The second generation wasn't even really in my life. So I was forced as a third generation... And all that rolls with that, with the lack of a father, forced to learn how to be a first generation to my kids and my grandkids when I had no impact from the generation before me. Is it any wonder that we're in a mess that we're in? Let me show you something about the generations. The, the next thing on your notes is this. The first generation is usually marked by growth and innovation. It is, it is usually marked by creative activity or a creative mindset. It's marked by someone who just decides 
I got to change my situation. I got to make an impact. I, I, I use this example. I think about uh, Bill Gates and I think about Steve Jobs and I think about Apple and Microsoft. Nowadays, it's this generation, the third and fourth generation, the young people and the, and the little kids, you know, they don't know the history of that. They, they don't, when they pick up a computer, they don't realize how it was before the computer. And even when the first computer started coming out mainstream in, in the late 80s or the mid-80s, and you'd see a computer, you'd see an Atari 5200. Come on, Jesus, I'm, I'm thinking back to my childhood, baby. I'm talking about when, when you had the Sega Genesis and all them other things coming out. They were so cutting edge, man. But here's the reality at that time. Here's the reality. At one point, if you did not know how to do code and type in a computer, you couldn't get anything on the screen and you couldn't get anything to be done. But somebody, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, they both, in different ways, said, you know what, if we want to take this to the masses, and it really, and yes, of course they were thinking about making money, but if you go back and study, you'll find out they weren't thinking about becoming the richest people in the world. They were just thinking about, I want to change the world. They knew their ideas would change the world. So they come up with an idea to put an icon on the screen that represents all the code that you used to have to type in behind that little icon. And then they come up with this idea of this thing called a mouse. Now it's just accepted. I'm not talking about the thing that runs through your house when you're watching TV and you hear something in your kitchen. I'm, talk, I'm, talking, about, I'm talking about a mouse on your table that you, that you move. And when you move it, it moves on that screen. And you can touch that icon and double click. And all the code that you used to have to type runs for you. Let me tell you something. It changed the world. Would you agree? It changed the world. And as a result of it changing the world, for years, Bill Gates has consistently been at the top, sometimes been knocked out and now brought back up in different things. He was the richest man in the world because of a creative idea. He was the first generation. The, the first generation is first generation mindset of, of, of people. Because remember, every first generation is also a second and a third generation. But I'm talking about a mindset. When someone becomes a first generation mindset, they, they are the ones that become self-made millionaires or even billionaires. He didn't even graduate college. Steve Jobs didn't graduate college. Kids don't get, it, get the idea that all I got, well, I need to quit college so I can become rich. Now, stay in college. But, you know, can I just say something publicly right now? You don't have to go to college to be successful either. So I just want you to know that even if you don't have a college education, you can still get a good job. Amen. That needs to be said because I think, I think kids think in their minds sometimes that if I don't succeed and don't get a scholarship and whatever, I'm a failure, you can be a success no matter where you're at. That's good preaching right there. No one did it for them. But they, and watch what happens. When a first generation person becomes that successful, they usually leave a huge inheritance to their children. And that's a good thing, but that can also become a problem. I'll show you in just a second. The perfect example of a first-generation mindset was David. David was a creative mindset. He was a man after God's own heart. His ministry started in the desert with the sheep. He was not afraid to get his hands dirty. First-generational-minded people are not afraid to get their hands dirty. They're not afraid to work 14, 16 hours. They're not afraid to work seven days a week. Because their mindset is they're not really trying to make more money. They really want to change the world. And they think, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I'll do it. We come up with sayings like this. If, if it's been passed down for generations, it goes something like this. If it's easy, everybody be doing it. 
In other words, that's a, that's a nice way of saying everybody's not going to have what it takes to get this done. Because it takes a first generational mindset who's thinking of the third generation to get that done. David wasn't afraid of bears and lions. He wasn't afraid of a giant. By the time he got to the giant, he'd already killed a bear. He'd already killed a lion. He, not only did he kill a lion, the Bible said he pulled, pried the lion's mouth open, pulled the sheep out, made sure it was okay, and then finished ripping his mouth apart and killing him. He was a teenager when he did that. He understood that he couldn't do it on his own. When he became king, here he was. This is, this is the big picture mindset of David. He's, he is the man. They're going to establish the tabernacle. He's finally the king. They're going to have the tabernacle of David. He says, wait a minute. Can't do this without my own. We can't change the world on our own. This is not about me. We need to go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back. We've lost the Ark. We need the presence. So he went back and got the presence of God. Let me tell you, let me tell you a, a first generational, third generational mindset person that he was, a, a big picture mindset that he was. He led by example. The Bible said as they were bringing the, the, the Ark of the Covenant back, he was out front. Now I want you to watch this. It was miles that that thing went. And the Bible said they would take six steps. One, two, three, four five, six, and then they would stop and he would tell them to blow the trumpets and, sh and get the tambourines and they would dance with all, before the Lord with all their might. Then they'd calm down, walk six more steps and do it again. Can you, can you imagine how long it took them to get back? But can you also imagine the impact that David made on all those people that was with him to see their king couldn't even take six steps without praising God? You're talking about the stories that had to be told. Come on. I'm talking about when things got bad in somebody's little house or somebody's little hut, they'd say, well, you'll tell you what I remember. I remember seeing our own king. No matter what it looked like, he couldn't even take six steps without praising God. We're going to praise God in this house. If our king can praise God, we're going to praise God in this house. But the second generation, next thing you notice, the second generation is usually marked by entrenchment. Entrenchment. That word entrenchment means to hunker down. We talked about it in the first, first service. It's like, it's like entrenchment is almost like a military term. Because you, you dig a ditch, a trough, and you entrench yourself in it while the bullets are flying. Or you find a safe house and you entrench you and your, your men in it until it's safer to come out. Now that's, that's, sometimes that's a good military strategy. To protect your men so that you can go back and fight. But the reality is this. When you entrench yourself, whether good or bad, you have taken yourself out of the battle. You've taken yourself out of the field. Are y'all hearing me? You're finding a way to be more comfortable. Where your daddy, where David was in the fight... You entrench yourself. See, the, the thing that sociologists say about the second generation is they, re they remind us that they are not the ones that directly experienced the creative event. They didn't come up with Microsoft. His kids, Bill Gates' kids, Steve Jobs' kids, did not create the mouse. Did not create Windows. Are you hearing me? What they have, they have inherited. They've inherited good times and prosperity. There's no longer a drive to accomplish, to create ideas, to grow. The second generation is usually content to preserve and consolidate the gains of the first generation. They know the triumphs of the past, 
and sometimes even wish and dream for them. Yet because they are content with what they have inherited, there is very little motivation to put forth the genuine effort it will take to sustain the dynamic of the past. So the second generation is content with listening to the stories of the first generation. So they, they are content with listening to daddy or mama talk about how they built this wealth. Are y'all hearing me? Where their mama and daddy worked hard to build, they still work, second generation works hard as well, but second generation works hard to maintain the status quo. Don't want to upset the apple cart. I, if anything, I just want to keep the money Moving. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. This is the generation that gets the cushy job many times from mom and dad. A sense of entitlement comes in. They don't want to go out and find work. They just assume that daddy's going to put them to work. Come on, somebody. One of the things that I admire about Bill Gates, I don't agree with a lot of of his belief systems and all this to some extent I think he's moving in the direction of God most of his life he's been an atheist but his wife is not an atheist and she has really been making an impact on his life and he's been making some statements here lately as he gets older uh, that there may be a God and all this kind of thing I think God is really dealing with wouldn't it be awesome for Bill Gates one of the richest men in the world to get radically saved because he's already got a given spirit because watch because watch what happened he told his kids this is documented fact. He, this, guy's, this guy's not a millionaire. This guy's a multi-billionaire. Okay? He told his kids, he said, let me tell you something. I'm not giving you my money. I love you with all my heart. Now, now he's, granted, he's going to give them a few million dollars. And for us, it'll be like, woohoo! But watch this. For people that's, that's living that kind of lifestyle, if they're not careful, they can burn through millions of dollars. Okay? So he said, look, I'm going to leave you an inheritance. But you need to know. He showed them the will. He said, my money is not going to you. My money is going to the world. So Bill Gates, through the influence of his wife, has decided to do everything in his power while he's alive and even after he's gone. Because here's the crazy thing about wealth. If he's tried to give all his money away, he can't do it to certain causes. He can't do it. His money makes money so fast that the more he gives away, the more he still has. So he's, he's in that place. Wouldn't that be nice? But, but watch this. But watch this. He is determined to wipe out AIDS. He's determined to wipe out world hunger. He's determined. Sounds sort of like the Great Commission. It, the church is not even concerned about The church is concerned about building big buildings and all kinds of stuff. And here's a man who says he don't even believe in God who has purpose to take all of his wealth and change the world with it. Come on. Come on. So he said, you know what? You're going to have to make your own way. He said, look, you, I'll give you some money to invest. But right now you need to start finding your own way. Do not think that when me and your mom are gone that you're going to live forever on our money. You're not getting it. Now, that's, to me, I admire that. It's not that I don't think that you should have the right to do that. He certainly has the right to do that. But what he's trying to do is he knows his kids are going to be taken care of. That's not the case. He's trying to teach them to be a first-generation mindset once he's gone, thinking of the third generation. Solomon was second generation to David. Solomon was the son of David. Are you hearing me? But he was not driven by the vision of his father. He was content to consolidate and preserve. Where his dad would go to battle, his son 
done everything he could do to stay out of battle. He built the most magnificent structure that the world has ever seen. Solomon's temple was so overlaid with so much gold that theologians and experts say that if they rebuilt it to exact dimensions, as was mentioned in Scripture today, it would be the first building to ever cost $1 trillion to build. $1 trillion. That's how much gold is in it. It'll never be done again. But here's the reality. That's a great accomplishment. But if you think about it, I know he built it. It's, it's the temple of God. It's for God's house and the ritualistic things of God were done in that temple. But it was really a testimony to himself. It was a place for him to feel protected. It was a place for him to feel sheltered. He was surrounded in the wealth of his father. Are you hearing me? He compromised alliances and surrounded nations in order to preserve what David had gained. These compromises brought great struggle to the nation of Israel. See, even though he did accomplish things, The things that he was known for were really the result of the stability brought forth by his father, watch this, on the battlefield. David had won so many battles, had so much respect in in other nations that much of the peace and prosperity that Solomon experienced really had not much to do with Solomon, but more so to do with his father. Are y'all with me? Now, here's a man... Who God himself, quite frankly, I think as an honor to his father David, because David and and God had such a relationship that before Samuel even knew who David was, he spoke to the prophet and said, go to the house of Jesse, for I have found me a man who is after my own heart. He's a teenage boy when he was called that. So you're talking about a relationship that they had in that desert. So as an honor of that, David's gone. Solomon's getting ready to become the king. God comes to Solomon and says, Solomon, what do you want? Tell me what you want, and it will be given to you without limit. Solomon said, if I'm going to do what I need to do, I need wisdom. So I'm asking, Lord, for your wisdom. And God said, I'm going to give you my wisdom, and you will be known as the wisest man before or, you, or the wisest man to ever live after you. Because you didn't ask for anything like money, I'm going to make you also the wealthiest in the world. So here's a man who had a one-on-one relationship with God to where God, can you imagine, it's one thing for God to give you direction in a situation. It's another thing for him to say, I'm going to give you my wisdom. I'm going to make you the wisest human being in history. But this proves that you can be wise and still be stupid. I'm going to say it again. Y'all might want to tweet that. You can be wise and stupid at the same time. Sometimes you can be so wise that you start believing in yourself more than you believe in the one that gave you the wisdom. And that's what happened to Solomon. Mm-hmm. See, see, David was big picture. David understood. When David was in battle as a young man about to face Goliath, listen, 
He, this is testimony that he, didn't, that he knew it had nothing to do with him, and it was all about God. They said, it's time to go. He said, I'm going up here to kill that giant. And King Saul said, well, if you're going to go, at least protect yourself, because you look pretty stupid now going up there as a little boy against that big 9 to 12-foot tall guy up there. Here, put my armor on. David said, well, I appreciate the offer. I do not know this armor, but I do know this sling. So how crazy do you have to be to face a giant who's clothed in armor from top to bottom, with a spear bigger than you, and you ain't got nothing but a loincloth and a strap of leather across you, and a little pouch with five stones in there, and confident enough to know I only need one. Walks up to him and says, how dare you defy the armies of God? You come to me with a spear and a sword, but I come to you in the mighty name of Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are coming down today, boy. He knew who he was in God. He had no identity crisis. But Solomon had an identity crisis. Because in his wisdom, he thought, when you start believing more in yourself than believing in God, you will start saying things like this. It's all right, I got this. Huh? It's all right, I got this. I appreciate it. I appreciate your offer to help me. I got this. We're good. I got this. But watch yourself. Oh, you wreck yourself. Huh? I'll tell you something about Solomon. Why has this man never lived? You would think his legacy would be full of wisdom. Of course, you know his legacy is Proverbs. He is full of wisdom. You read his word, his wisdom. But I'm talking about the end of his life is a, one of the saddest things you will ever read in your life. He ended up directly disobeying God and marrying outside of Israel. In marrying into tribes who worship false gods, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Good God Almighty. Ladies, don't take no disrespect by this, but I have a hard enough time with one wife. I can't imagine having to keep 700 wives and 300 side chicks on. The, come on, y'all hear me? Hello? Number one, you don't need no side chick, all right? God ain't going to be pleased with no side, something on the side. You ain't got nothing on the side. You married, all right? But he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had 1,000 women every day getting up telling him what to do. No wonder he landed up in the mess he was in. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Now watch this. We're talking about legacy. Everybody say Legacy. So when you, when you really start thinking about legacy is when you start getting older. You should be thinking about it all your life, but we really start thinking about it when we get older, right? Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 11. Verse 4 says, For it was so that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. His wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. As was the heart of his father, David. Whew. Remember, his father was a man after God's own heart. But he was indicted by the writer of 1 Kings by saying his heart was not like his father's heart. And listen to, what, listen to verses 6 to 8. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father, David. 
Then Solomon, this is the most shocking thing of all, built a high place in Chemosh of the abomination of Moab on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. What does all that mean? There was a false god who was widely known in that area of the Philistines, the god of, the, of Molech. He built a temple on the east side of Jerusalem, meaning that when you're standing outside of the temple, you could literally see the temple of, Mo, of Molech that he had built to worship a false god. He had the most magnificent structure to ever build, but he was not satisfied until he built another building for a false god. Is that not incredible? And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Do you understand that means that he built altars and tabernacles for every tribe of all of his 700 wives so that they could go worship their false gods. Instead of teaching them, you need to come in my house and worship the only God. That's incredible. i got to hurry. The next thing on your notes is the third generation. The third generation is marked by decline. The third generation is marked by decline. See, time passes, the mantle falls in the third generation, but by the third generation, they've only heard of the great stories. They've only heard of David. They don't know anybody left from the generation of David, or, or if they do, it's very few of the first generation. All they know about the first generation is secondhand knowledge. They've heard the stories of the past. But they are far away and unreal to them. And they find no compelling reason to be driven by the vision that drove their grandparents. I think about the generation of Oral Roberts, and Billy Graham, and Jack Cole. Come on. Amy Simple McPherson. The healing revivalist that would pack out tents. 12, 15, 20,000 people would get up on her. Can you imagine tents that big? They were that big. They took up acres. And people would come. And they would see miraculous healings. Healings like you see on the mission field now, just about only. Very seldom do you see them in America. But you used to see them in America on the same level. You know, here we are in the third generation from that generation. When Billy Graham passed away just recently, the question, and I remember it happening when Old Roberts passed away, but really when Billy Graham passed away, there was a question that happened through the church. Who's the next Billy Graham? Who's going to take the mantle now? It looks like slim pickings to me, to be honest with you. It's hard to find a Billy Graham in this day. That don't mean they ain't there. Battery up here. I got one. Hallelujah. How is it that you only have a 50-50 chance of putting in a battery the right way and I choose the wrong way every single time? Decided <laughs> to get that out. I mean, I don't think I've ever really put it in the right way. 
But I think about that generation, and this is what happens. I start thinking about stories that I've studied and I've read. There is something that happened right here. This is not in Dallas, Texas, or this is not in Azusa Street in California. This happened in Birmingham, Alabama. In Birmingham, Alabama, a man that most of you have never heard of, R.W. Schambach, had a major, major meeting in Birmingham, Alabama. I have talked to people who were at this meeting. I've talked to them face-to-face, and they saw what I'm about to tell you. They brought a baby to him who had no eyeballs in his eye sockets. Empty cavities, sunken eyes. He prayed for that baby and held that baby out. The baby had a bunch of other issues too. But held that baby out. And as he was praying in the faces of a thousand people, there was no way for it to be trickery. There was no CGI back then. This wasn't on video. This was in front of the people in Birmingham. Two eyeballs formed in the, in the sockets of this baby's head. Opened up his eyes and there were eyeballs. Another baby's leg was about a half the size as the other baby's leg. Held that baby up and right in front of everyone, they all saw that baby's leg grow out to the same level as the other one. In Birmingham, Alabama, I have talked to eyewitnesses. But that almost seems hard to believe, don't it? Because here we are three generations later. And all we have now is the ability to tell that story. But I got news for you. The same God that did that for R.W. Schambach is the same God that we preach today. So instead of accepting a decline of the third generation, why don't we decide to be a regeneration, come on somebody, and be the first generation to say if God did it for them, why can't he do it for us? If we're not careful, we'll become the third generation. The third generation under David was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the king of a united Israel, but because he had no... The last thing he saw from his father was seeing his father go out and build temples for false gods. So you're talking about an identity crisis of being able to be strong as the king of Israel. The, the, the strength of a king David was nowhere to be found. So it was easy for people to start conspiring behind his back with his other brother to come in and divide the kingdom with his brother Jeroboam and take ten of the tribes. And all of a sudden he went from king of Israel to the king of Judah. And because, quite frankly, not just of Rehoboam, and I love Solomon, I mean no disrespect, I don't think God's going to get mad at me for saying this, all I'm doing is preaching the Bible. And I believe with all my heart Solomon made it to heaven. But here's the reality. Because of the way Solomon ended, it caused Rehoboam to begin that way. And even worse. So he had no ability to stop it. And look, look at the legacy. It took over a thousand years for there to be any kind of bringing back unity in the nation of Israel. Over a thousand years. Now, you're talking about generations. Remember when Nehemiah came back to the walls that had been destroyed and the gates had not been rebuilt? He found a people that were living within the walls of Jerusalem who had given up. They had accepted that the weeds had overtaken the walls that used to be glorious. 
And it's something that's shocked you. I'm not condoning this. It's Old Testament. This is not what you're supposed to do. But the Bible said he went in there and whipped them. He slapped a few of the leaders in the face. It's in your Bible. And said, boy, do you not even know who you are? Does it not bother you? Does it not bother you that you walk by the ruins of what used to be greatness? But they had been so far removed in generations that they had accepted it. And the next thing on your notes is this, and I'll do them both quickly, the last two. When we lose the third generation, we lose our legacy. Now, how do we keep from losing the third generation? There is a way. It's the last one on your notes. Live in your purpose for the now generation. I know there's a typo there. Live in your purpose for the, for the now generation. Provide for the second generation. And build for the third generation. If you'll live your life right now constantly thinking about decisions, think of how you're going to flow with things and how you're going to speak, how does this affect my generation? How is this making provision for the, my children and my, my second generation? And how is this building a future for the third generation? Now watch this. Even if you don't have kids, even if you never dreamed to have kids, or even... Tragically, if you've lost your kids, here's the reality. You still have second generation people in your life. Spiritual sons and daughters. You have third generation people in your life. I'm not just talking about your family. I'm talking about your family first, but I'm talking about your world. God wants you to change the world. Therefore, that means your legacy is supposed to go beyond just your children and your children's children. See, because if you truly affect your children, you're going to affect your children's friends. If you affect your children's children, your grandkids, your grandkids, whether you ever meet the grandkids' friends or not, your, infa- your impact on those grandkids, they will affect their friends. So it goes beyond your immediate family. So guys, do you see the pattern of Solid Rock Church for the last year and a half? I am doing everything in my power under the anointing of God to pull you out of the rut that you are in. I am trying to get you off of that pew, out of entrenchment, out of maintenance mode. Are you hearing me? I am trying to get you back in the fight. I don't want to be in the fight. I'm tired of fighting. No, the reason you're tired of fighting is because you've been trying to fight alone. You have never, you'll never win that fight. It's the reason why we call it the SRC family. Quit thinking my job is to come to church and just receive good preaching from Pastor Larry and good worship. I am trying to pull you out. Quit fighting. Me. Get back in the fight, but quit fighting me. Yeah. I'm your spiritual father. Yeah. And I'm trying to call something out of you. But I can't call something out of you that you won't let me call out of you. I know I'm over time, but watch this. My kids, I don't care what my kids ever do. They can look at me and say, you are not my father anymore. I disown you. I will look at them and say, girl, I don't care what you say. You ain't got the right to tell me I ain't your daddy. I am your daddy. So I get the right to say I'm your daddy. But listen how spiritual impact happens. 
spiritual sons and daughters. That's what you are to me. I don't have the right to come to you and say, Shane, you are my son, whether you like it or not. No, spiritual fathership and relationships of second and third generation, the authority of that relationship does not come from the father. It comes from the son or the daughter. The son or the daughter has to give permission to that spiritual father or mother and say, I want you to pour into my life. So I can preach till I'm blue in the face. Like my mom always said, I'll talk to you till I'm blue in the face, boy, and you still don't listen. I can preach till I'm blue in the face. But watch this, until you decide, he's not my preacher, he's my pastor. He's my shepherd, and he's trying to help me. And when he says things to me like, it's time to get off that pew. It's time to sign up. It's time to go back by the welcome desk and say, I'm ready to serve. It's time to go to the growth track. It's time to make something of my life. It's time to begin to see myself differently. Then listen, until you decide to do that, you are in full-time entrenchment mode. And what you need, to, you need to understand that as long as you stay in entrenchment mode and maintenance mode, you think it's your comfort zone, but what you don't realize is that it is affecting the generation coming after you. Because your kids, your grandkids, your family members are watching you. They don't do what you say. They do what you do. Amen.